I also learned I didn't want my boss's boss's job. And I felt like that was a really powerful lesson for me because I knew so many people that were way further along in their careers that were chasing things that they had never really had a taste of. And I felt like, look, this has been super helpful because I don't want that person's job. We are back on another episode of the Gravity Podcast with our guest today, Kumi Walker. Kumi, thanks for joining me, taking the time to join us on the podcast. Thank you, Brett. I'm a listener of the podcast and um, a friend of yours and excited to, to have the opportunity to have a talk. Yeah, me too. So let's um, kind of follow the format and go to the beginning. I want to hear uh, about kind of your early life as a kid, your your family dynamics, you know, where you're from, just talk a little bit about kind of what it was like in your early days. Yeah, so I I'm the youngest of 3. Um and and I can talk about a lot about my early days. I think a, a lot of them have shaped who I am. I've listened to how you talked about your mother and her leadership and how that's really I've kind of formed who you are. I am no different. So um, the youngest of three, I would say I, I was born into just such a loving um, and talented family. My family, you know, just a high level, my, my everyone was excellent at something. <laughs> my, my brother is a physician. My sister was an actress and spent a career in retail. They went to Morehouse and Spelman, respectively. My mom and dad were also went to Morehouse and Spelman. Um, they actually met there. Uh, my mom was the he- president of her class. My dad was the president of his class. My father studied international relations at Hopkins and later had a law degree at Georgetown. My mom is the first uh, woman from a historically black college to go to Harvard Law. So like just really born into like this, this excellent family. And the other thing that was really interesting, I'm, I'm the super youngest. So uh, my brother is eight years older than I am. My sister is 10 years older than I am. So, and I was a latchkey kid at 10. Both my parents were practicing attorneys. Um, So a lot of my kind of childhood uh, was spent, again, in a very loving family, but very much figuring things out because I was alone a lot once my brother went to college. So I was the part of my life was was spent as an only child for a short period of time. Um, You know, my Father, late father, is a community organizer uh, and an attorney. He led sit-ins as a high school student in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where he grew up. My mother was uh, a civil rights uh, activist and an attorney. Um, so she was very much, and they were both very much involved in the civil rights movement. And I would say a big part of our family was really rooted in knowing who you are, and you know, feeling conf- getting confidence about who you are from kind of what family means and how we got there, being really mm-hmm. having a lot of humility, um, but also confidence. Um, and that was a big part of what my parents really instilled in us. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kumi, let me just jump in there for a second. I'm just curious. Yeah, because this is great. Very interesting. And and I'm, I'm kind of curious about that last piece, you know, and, and also the only child part, you know, it's kind of funny. <laughs> you know, my my wife uh, who listens to every show. So hi, Katie. Um, <laughs> but she, her sister was six years older. And so she kind of feels like she also had like 
both, you know, a sibling and at times was an only child. And so I'm curious about that dynamic. And like, it's interesting how you say that, you know, you had to figure things out and, and, you know, how that, you know, could end up really serving you. And at the same time, you've got this like really loving family and I'm, and I'm an incredibly impressive family. And I'm also kind of curious about how they really did instill humility and confidence because those are two yeah. things that like, man, you know, if you can embody those two things, you know, knowing who you are and being strong and confident yet humble is a beautiful combo. And I'm just curious, like, how did they really instill that in you? Um, that, that's a great question. I, I think about that a lot with my boys. <laughs> well, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm raised in the process of raising. I think... I've thought about this a lot, and I think I've been more mindful of this since I had my first son. And I think a big part really starts with, um, they call it psychological safety, but I'll just say safety in general. Uh, Particularly for a person of color, I just always felt safe growing up. And a big part of that is my, my family, but also a big part of it is the community I grew up in. I'm from a town in uh, called Columbia, Maryland. Um, it is. It was started by a real estate developer who I'm sure you're familiar with, named James Rouse. Um, and he was a real revolutionary. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know how much you know. Do you, are you familiar with James Rouse? I know. Columbia? Yes, a little bit. Okay. Yes. Yes. So, yes. So I know about his, Columbia. His, yeah. His big. So Columbia was one of the first planned communities, and I think people hear that and they think, oh, like all the houses look the same, or whatever. But really, it was. He built this community and he sent this memo, internal memo to his company that I think would still be pretty revolutionary today, but it was in 1967, 68. And he basically said, no matter who comes to buy a home, you're going to show them all the homes, whether they are black, Asian, Jewish, like wherever, whatever their nationality, they're all going to be able to buy a home there, here. And what that meant was it created a community of people who were diverse and the people in that community wanted to be in a diverse community. So for me, just going back to your question, like not only did I feel safe at home, I also felt welcomed and safe in the community where I grew up, which should everyone should feel that way. Um, but I didn't learn until I got older and kind of went to college and moved away from home and moved around the country that that was actually fairly unique, particularly for a person of color. Um, so that's the safety piece. And I think the confidence piece doesn't all come in one big thing. I think it comes in little moments where you earn and begin to gain confidence as you get throughout the world. But I think it's really hard to have that if you don't have that first element of just like feeling safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really fascinating because, you know, I'm just thinking about it, you know, from a real estate standpoint and and really, you know, what I've been trying to do is build communities and communities that would really help people in any number of ways as they go about their lives. And, and it's, and so I'm kind of struck by the fact that, you know, there's a, a man who really wanted people to feel safe. And, and, you know, the, and focused on the importance of diversity and then how that did trickle down into your life, you know? Yeah. No, it's had a huge impact on my life um, in so many ways. And it meaningfully, I think changed the one, how I see the world, 
how I interact and have a relationship with other people, particularly those that aren't, that don't look like me. And I think it's meaningfully impacted the trajectory of my career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and maybe you could just speak a little bit about, you know, kind of the figuring things out and being that, <laughs> you know, kind of latchkey only child too. I'd like to hear a little more about that. Yeah. So, um, Absolutely. I'll I'll start with um. So my my mom was the was a trial attorney. Um, and this was before kind of kids had cell phones. So the only way that I could get in touch with my mom when I was a kid is I had to call her secretary to answer, and then I had to find a good enough reason to get to my mom because she was too, usually pretty busy. So clearly, if there was anything wrong, I could always get to my mom. So that was kind of the money move. That was the lever. So <laughs> I was at home one. I was at home one day. I wanted. I had to have been nowhere. I was maybe ten or eleven, and I called my mom. And I, I remember this so vividly. It was a. It, it was a really important lesson, and it'll give you a little insight into my mom's teaching philosophy. I called my mom and I said, my her secretary answered, and she said, you know, uh, Kumi, your mom's in a deposition. Is this really important? And I said, can you tell her it's it's urgent? So my mom comes to the phone. And she's like, what's going on? I'm like, hey, how do I boil an egg? I'm hungry. How do I boil an egg? And my mom hung up on me. <laughs> um, so I don't know if it was that day, but eventually I learned how to boil an egg. Yeah. Um, but, it, but she, you know, I think the, my, I always felt like what my parents, my parents always were there for me when I needed them. But I always felt like a big part of like my job was to figure out things and tr- through trial and error. And I think a lot of how I've led my life has been, you know, you can dump me anywhere and I, will, I, I have confidence that I can figure it out. Yeah. Well, it's really a very important thing, I think, for people to hear, um, especially today. And, you know, you talked a little bit about kind of how, you know, you are uh, influenced as a parent based on some of the things that you learned along the way. You know, as I, I can speak for myself, that you know, you have a tendency to just want to make sure your kids are okay and that they yeah. have what they need and you love <laughs> them and you want to give them all the love. But sometimes the most loving thing you can do is hang up the phone and let them figure <laughs> it out. Right? Yeah, I got to right. learn how to figure yeah, things is, out. You know, that is right. That is yeah. right. It's hard because you do, yeah. you, have, you have these kids and you're like, oh man, I just always want to protect them. But you know the world is not always the nicest place, and mm-hmm. you do want to be there when they get hurt, so that you can be there to help them. But it is—I think—that is one of the hardest balances. You know, mm-hmm. it's not about coddling your kids, but you just want your kids to, you know, not get hurt. It's a really hard balance. Yeah. Okay. So um, I think I interrupted you. You were going to say there was one other thing that was really impactful from your your family. Oh yeah, I was just going to basically talk about the community, um, mm-hmm. and and I think the the thing um, that really changed how or I, I, in in hindsight, I think it's really easy, it's really hard to look at your life connecting the dots going forward, but like it's really interesting to go back and find the dots that have gotten you to where you are, and I think the thing for me that I never liked this concept of networking. Um, or the or the way that people would use it. Oh, come to this event. We're going to network. And I'm like, well, you know, what are we going to talk about? Like, who are the people? And and you know, but I realized that the th- networks are really powerful. Um, and being in network uh, is really powerful. I can talk more about that. But for me, having real relationship with people who are very different than I am 
super early on in my life has meaningfully impacted the opportunities that I've been able to um, have and also the relationships I've been able to build throughout my life. And I think that's really, I go back to not only my family, but the community that I was had the privilege of being a part of growing up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let, let's circle back around to that. I, I agree with you. And I think that it's an important conversation because it's oftentimes, you know, the, the word network or networking can feel very salesy and very kind of, right. I don't know, yucky, but it, but there is a lot of power there. And, and, you know, if done, you know, maybe in the context of community, it's um, a very different thing that can be very supportive and collaborative and super beneficial for everybody involved. So let's come back to that. Tell me a little bit more about kind of you as a kid and what your interests were. And I agree with you. It's one of the things that I love about kind of, you know, the podcast, and this is really more from like, for, for my own benefit, you know, I, I love hearing how people connect the dots going backwards. And then, you know, yeah. one of the things that I'm most passionate about is when you do that, if you take the time to do that, then, you know, you can really see how it can serve you go forward. But, but I, I do want to kind of connect some dots with you. Tell me a little bit more about, you know, what kinds of things you were into and what your interests were and what you were doing as, you know, kind of this figuring it out phase. Yeah. So I, I, I'm a huge soccer fan and I was a, at one point a big soccer player. Um, and I just loved, um, everything about the sport, the game, uh, particularly the relationships I built, uh, from the teams I played on. I'm still on several text threads with people I've been playing soccer with my entire life. And, uh, I just, that's where I spent a lot of my time. Academics was always really important to my family um, and really important to me. And between those two things, I was either outside kicking the ball around um, or you know inside reading a book. That's kind of how I really spent a lot of my time. I, you know, because I came back in that kind of ten to eighteen in, in my house. Yeah, I would spend a lot of time at friends' houses. I would get my work done, then I would go go for a run to a friend's house, and we would kick a ball around. And but a lot of time that I spent as a kid wasn't really that much time inside my house unless I was like doing something. I liked being out in the neighborhood. And then the weekends, it was soccer all day, all night. I played other sports, but really soccer was the thing that uh, got me. But, uh, you know, part of the reason I loved it uh, beyond the sport is I felt like it was a pretty international sport. I felt like my, my world was bigger when I got to like figure, learn about teams. This was before the Premier League was everywhere on TV. Even though the Premier League was established when I was a kid, but you know, I would watch Ajax on Saturday morning because Ajax was the only games that they showed. It felt so cool to see these players that some were Dutch and some were French and some were, and you know, it just felt like my world was bigger just because I was connected to this sport. Mm. Um, and I knew I always one day wanted to um, study or live abroad, and I wanted I wanted a bigger world, and soccer felt like a you know a pathway to that. Mm-hmm. Do you do you remember kind of anything that was like underneath the bigger world? Like, do you, do you remember kind of like why you had an interest in a bigger world? Was was soccer what exposed you to that, or was there something that was exciting about that that brought you you know to soccer? Is there anything else yeah. there? So I will say I so my parents were uh, so I grew up in Columbia, Maryland. My parents were attorneys in DC. 
And, you know, every once in a while, in the summers, when I was a young kid, I would like go and be like a, an admin to their secretary in the office. So I would file things or whatever. And their secretary would always just walk me around to get me snack. We'd walk together to get snacks and just walk around the city. And DC felt like so big to me. Um, you know, I, Columbia is a suburban area and DC, there were just like honking cars and buildings and, and just, it was just an energy that I loved. Um, and it felt like, man, big cities are like where I, I love this energy and it, and it felt very international. You hear people speaking other languages, um, when you were just walking around DC. So there, that was part, definitely part of it. And I think for as, as much as I loved my town. I kind of always knew in the back of my head, I wasn't going to live there when I grew up. It was like an interesting um, thing. I was like, you know, this place is amazing and I want to go see the world. And I, and I want to, and it wasn't like, but I want to go see the world. It was, and I want to go see it. Like, I always feel like I have a home here. And, and honestly, I think part of that was, I just had confidence that if things didn't work out when I went away, I could always come back. Um, and that's how I've kind of, even as a kid, I always knew that I was going to go away to college. I was going to go away and I probably wasn't going to move back to my hometown. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's an interesting thing that you, you felt, I'm, I'm just uh, imagining that you felt some sort of the safety, the kind of security that like you could go back. So yeah. that was helpful to have you go out because you knew you had something to go back to, you know, it just seems like, that theme is an important one, you know, that, that that community really just did continue to give you courage and strength and confidence to go out. And yeah, courage to take risks too. And I think that's uh, like a, if you go, go back to my kids, like I want my kids to have courage to take risks and to know mm -hmm. that failure is actually okay. And, and in many ways leads you to something else you probably couldn't get to unless you failed at this first thing. Um, and I, that, dots concept is something I talk to my kids all the time. I'm like, so much of the world is set up for you to think, okay, so I have to do this thing and then I'm going to go do this other thing. But the reality is life isn't a straight line. It is, you get to a dot and you look around and you're like, whoa, look at all these other directions I can go into. And yeah. I want them to have the courage to look around and to be willing to jump and take big risks. Yeah. And to find the ones that like really speak to them. I actually just got back from this conference where Eric Schmidt spoke and he was talking about kind of life being in chapters and that, you know, sometimes people get scared to close a chapter and go to the next. And in fact, you know, what he encouraged people to do is to run to the next chapter and not because of like, you know, shiny objects or, you know, next thing, always moving on to the next thing. His belief was, and I, and I agree with this. I've seen this in my own life that it's part of the, it's part of how you evolve as a human being. It's like yeah. how you actualize, you know, your, your highest self is by moving, you know, into new things, taking risks totally. and not getting kind of stuck in the same place or in the same thing. So, you know, and, and I, and I kind of want to just circle back around to soccer a little bit, because I'm curious about, kind of how you embody that sport beyond kind of the, you know, global aspect of it and the international aspect of it. You know, I'm curious, it sounds like it was a big part of your life. And, and what were you like, you know, as an athlete at, at that 
at that stage as a as a kid yeah. as you get get into high school you know talk a little bit more about kind of what kind of athlete you were and I, i'm not talking about just sure. like physically i mean like yeah. you know, how were you with that sport yeah so part of what i liked about it and i think it's true with pretty much any activity but i enjoyed the process like i enjoyed practicing i enjoyed training on my own by myself i enjoyed because i felt like i could see myself improve. And it wasn't a grind for me. I wasn't doing it so that my coach would congratulate me or so that my parents would be excited about my play. I just enjoyed spending time, like literally getting better at controlling a ball <laughs> and getting better at like figuring out how to read offenses. I, I was uh, primarily a midfielder and defender. As a player, I think I, you know, I would be described as like pretty tenacious. I, I like enjoyed going up and playing the best. Didn't always win, but we won a lot. And I loved it. I love, I love competing. I think the part that I really loved was like, you get really close with people when you go through something <clears throat> that's hard. Mm -hmm. And soccer was like a forcing function of going through something hard just by playing people that were better than you. Um, and I think um, the relationship you build with individuals and quite frankly, what you learn about yourself is really interesting. I, I had the, I was very fortunate to have some really great coaches that just instilled a lot of, you know, hard work. But beyond that, I think the other thing that they were just principled people, they were people I looked up to. Um, you know, when I say, think of like, people always ask, oh, who do you look up to? Certainly my parents, like Absolutely. I'm fortunate to be able to say that. And I know that, but my coaches were like a close second. Um, these were people I spent a lot of time with who, you know, gave me an opportunity and also pushed me. And I think there's a balance. I have a, um, I have my own principles that I, that I try and live by. And I, like for, when I have teams, we have them for our team, but one of them is this concept of tough love. And I think I really learned that in soccer and you can't have just one. You can't just have someone that loves you and doesn't care about you enough to be tough. And you can't have someone that's just so tough and doesn't love you. That's a, mm -hmm. either of those I think are bad combos, but the, when you put them together, I think it's really powerful. And I think I've gotten the most out of myself and soccer when I have applied that principle to myself. Hey, like here, here's something you're not good at. So you need to work really hard so that you don't let your team down. Mm -hmm. Um, and at the end of the day, that was really always kind of the motivating thing that got me to do the extra training, be as tenacious as I think I was on the field. Um, it was really, you know, you don't want to be the one that let the team down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. And, um, I'm, I'm kind of curious, you, you mentioned, um, and I don't know, I'm not sure, you know, how much this factors in, but I, I'm kind of curious about like the intellectual part of sport and soccer, like, yeah. you know, how much of it, it, you know, were you able to kind of use your intellect to figure things out, to navigate the kind of, you know, and even knowing like, well, I better work hard if I'm going to, I mean, it sounds like it's sort of, you know, basic, simple stuff, but you know, you're using your mind you know, in this, in this process quite a bit too, right? Oh yeah. I, I think it's a, it's huge, a huge mental game. I mean, the first is like, when you talk, think of figuring it out, it's like, okay, so what is the situation? 
are we playing a team that is a lot more talented than we are as the person that I am kind of defending and attacking against as that person? What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? Are they easily rattled? Um, how can I take them off their game mentally? All of those things, all the while in conjunction with how's my team doing? What's that? What's going on? What's our situation look like? And I think that's the piece that's so fun. Like you can't replicate that. Like you, as much as I love watching the game now, as much as I love you know, staying fit, I'm three ACL surgeries. I'm, I don't play the, <laughs> play the game anymore, but man, I miss that. I miss every game was different because every, there's so many different mini situations um, with the, with opponents and, and teammates uh, and your, your coach and theirs tactically, tactically game planning, all of those things changes on a minute by minute basis. And that's the fun part. Um, the physical part, you, you have to be fit enough to be able to last the 90 or 120 minutes with overtime. But that's the easy part. The, the, the fun part is, hey, how can we win? How can we break this team down? How can we preserve our lead or come back? How do we stay mentally in the game when we're up a goal with very few, very few little time left? All of those things. And those things, by the way, translate really well to like, work and personal life as well. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to ask you about that. And, you know, I want to make sure we kind of follow the threads through college and, and, and beyond. But, you know, as long as you brought that up, you know, I, I think a lot of times still today, you know, our society kind of demeans sport. And um, and maybe not just sport, but like fun in general or any kind of hobby you know, I, I, I paint, I play guitar, I play tennis. I, I, you know, I used to run marathons and in each case I have really found uh, a tremendous amount of learning about myself and about life and about, and certainly in the case of sport about team and working with other people. I mean, there's so much <laughs> to learn by playing sports in particular and, you know, people kind of write it off, I think, is like, you know, fun or hobbies or, yeah. you know, entertainment. But really, right. you know, there's a lot there to really learn from in, in work and in life. Yeah, I think that is absolutely. Joy has this, my, my wife has this um, thing that she tells my sons whenever they get frustrated. They try something new and they get frustrated. And she's like, nothing that you do throughout life gets really fun until you've gone through some parts that have been hard. And I think sport is truly that. Like if there's any hobby that you talked about, you didn't pick up a guitar and become as good at playing the guitar as you are now. You always got to a point that was hard and you had to figure, or that was like frustrating. Or I'm that still was at like, that point, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't say I was good at it. I'm not good at it. <laughs> I, I, I don't know about that. We'll still, I'll, I'll have to find out one day. But yeah, uh, I no. think that's the, the piece that I think of that actually informs how you get through those things in any other part of your life. When you get to part of, into a relationship that's hard, like, what do you do? Do you mm -hmm. just walk away? Do you just like quit it? You know, like that's the piece I think that you look, you can learn at any age from sport that becomes something that gives you confidence to be able to take those same principles and apply them to something at work, something in your personal life, um, something, you know, around tragedy. Like there's just a lot mm -hmm. of things where to me, it's really as much as the context of learning is, oh, I, I learned this thing and how to res conflict resolution, all these other things. You're really teaching and learning about yourself. And I think sport hobbies do that in a way that is highly personal. 
but also super relevant to other aspects of your life. Mm -hmm. Okay. So tell me a little bit about um, what next. I know you go on to play soccer in college. Talk a little bit about kind of, you know, what's emerging for you. Um, either, you know, kind of playing college sports or academically, or if you start to develop an interest for related to work, you know, tell me a little bit about kind of that part of your life. Totally. So, um, yeah, so I, I played soccer in college, um, and and, and in college, it, it was more like a job. (laughs) Um, it was a Mm -hmm. lot of hours, um, but still really enjoyed it. Wouldn't change it. I didn't really, I hadn't, didn't really know what I was going to do when I grew up, (laughs) when I was in college, both of my parents were attorneys. I talked about that. They had their own legal practice and they would bring their work home a lot. And I don't know if you remember, I think we're of the same vintage or at least around the same amount, but, um, the LA law was a big program growing up and Mm -hmm. one, one of my favorites. And they were like, and they would base if the fun thing about those law programs, one, they weren't like that real to life. It was more entertainment. But I would watch LA Law with my parents and they would help me delineate, hey, this is the things that are probably kind of true and this is kind of how it works. So I always had a fascination for lawyers and legal professions. So I kind of just felt like, oh, well, I'll probably be a lawyer when I grow up. And I remember I had filled out, I'd taken um, the LSAT, I don't know if they still take that, but the entrance exam for the law school. And I'd filled out all, uh, all my applications and I was going to actually mailed my application when a classmate of mine invited me to this dinner. And he had interned at an investment bank the summer before. Um, and the dinner was with, they had asked each intern to bring two people with them to this dinner. And um, I went, I had no idea, quite frankly, I'd heard of investment banking, but I didn't really know what it was. I hadn't considered it. I went to this dinner and opened my eyes to, wow, there are a lot of people with a lot of backgrounds that are going into finance. This was at the, this was 99. I graduated in 2000. The market was really interesting at the time. It was the first time in my life I could remember that there was so much market news on the cover of like the New York Times as opposed to just the Wall Street Journal. Um, so I was reading about markets. I learned more kind of throughout the rest of my uh, senior year and decided to take a job uh, at Goldman Sachs in New York. So I, I share that because no real path no one in my background, no one that I knew growing up had been an investment banker, but ended up taking a job at an investment bank really large and not applying to law, law school, largely because someone that I liked and trusted invited me to a dinner. I had a good experience at that dinner. And then I ended up applying and getting a, a role at my first company. And, and let me just ask you, I'm, I'm curious, you know, because I think this is maybe helpful for other people and you know, I think about it with my own kids. You started to go down the path of law. And yeah. obviously that's influenced by growing up with parents that are lawyers. By the yeah. way, were they in practice together? They were. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> and my um, and by the way, by the way, my fun other fun fact, my mom doesn't drive. So when my dad was alive, they literally were together at all times because my mom needed my dad to drive her around. Yeah, that's Pretty fascinating. Amazing. Yeah. Boy, I'm sure we could do a whole podcast with your yeah. mom about that experience. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um so okay, so so yeah, you 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 start to go down this path, which is obviously influenced by your family, right? And yep. you might have, you know, loved, you know, seeing them practice or 
you know, seeing what they did. Maybe it was really interesting to you, but there's no question that we often are influenced by either our family or, you know, kind of what we grow up around, maybe what we watch on TV. (laughs) So, you know, this, this investment banking thing kind of like seems to come out of nowhere a little bit. And what was it about that, that kind of like, had you say, you know what, I'm going to go over there instead. That's a great question. I think, so you have to remember, so this was 2000, this was the dot-com um, era. This was when there were companies that, you know, I could, I could read about them raising a, a round of financing and then they were going public six, seven months later. This was like the most interesting news all of a sudden was finance news. And I felt like learning how it worked, learning more about finance, which I had not studied. I was a political science major undergrad, was a really you know, intellect, like I was interested. Um, and I was like, I'm just going to lean into this interest. And if, you know, I could always go and it was the same logic. I could always go back to law school. Um, mm-hmm. If I don't like what I'm doing, I could always go back and, and, and like get a law degree. So for me, it was, I'm actually interested. The market seems to be validating that there's something happening in finance. And what, re- what it really was, was being in relationship with someone that had had the experience that invited me to have more of an intimate conversation. I wasn't going to an informational with 200 people learning about like building spreadsheets. It was, hey, here are people who have, here's a political science major who is an associate now. They've been at Goldman for four years. um, And here's what their career path is. And here's their perspective. And that was my first, I, I literally had never been and learned anything about investment banking. But my first interaction was with leaders from managing director all the way down to analysts. Of they were alums of my school who like, and I was at dinner with them. It would almost be like if someone had never heard of real estate development and they got invited to a dinner and they got to sit next to you and talk to you about real estate development. They would have a very different perspective, and that was the, my initial perspective of finance and investment banking. So I leaned into mm-hmm. it. It was mm-hmm. great. So yeah, I think that it was. I think more than anything. Even more than those macro things I talked about, it was really that I had relation. I, I had an intimate relationship with someone um, that my that was my initial interaction. It was like someone that I trust has now introduced me to people that they know, and they're telling me on an, in an intimate setting, "Hey, what is this career like?" Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is really interesting and almost like a bit sort of like spiritual in a way where it's like, and maybe this is about the network too, you know, that it's like just somebody for some reason decided to include you in a dinner, right? And and now you're in a room full of people that are opening your eyes in a, in a pretty, you know, in-depth way to something you, you really weren't exposed to that's getting you energized and kind of changing the trajectory of your life. Totally. Um, you know, it sort of feels like, man, that 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 feels like bigger than than it, you know, than you know, maybe we think it is even, you know, like yeah, uh, totally. and it makes you kind of, you know, remember to uh, do that for other people, you know, totally, yeah, absolutely, and and I think that element of um, how you get introduced to something is really powerful, and it was, you know, I had thought of investment banking and finance in general as something that was not for me. And then after one dinner, I felt like, oh, this is something that could be for me. 
Um, right. And that that really had did open my eyes. And it was a very exciting time. I was working in um, commercial banking and then in kind of mezzanine lending. And um, and I remember just the talk around the bank was you know all the all the tech stocks and you know yeah. just the the boom and the bust. And you know I was finding myself reading these you know, newspapers and magazines and and now on the internet, you know, and, and it was really, it was a very exciting time. Um, right. And so, so I think you said that you then went and worked for a company that you had banked. Is that, was that the next step? Not, not, not exactly. So before i leaving, I think there's some things I learned, one that I got mm-hmm. out of that experience. Yeah, um, please. My first and foremost, I met my wife there. <laughs> she oh, okay. was also an analyst there and now she's a uh, in medicine, so neither of us stuck. Um, <laughs> I, I also learned I didn't want my boss's boss's job. And I felt like that was a really powerful lesson for me because I knew so many people that were way further along in their careers that were chasing things that they had never really had a taste of. And I felt like, look, I've, this has been super helpful because I don't want that person's job. And the last thing I learned was and this was kind of goes back to those small boosts of confidence. I felt like I learned how to operate in a corporate environment. And I learned that I could operate in a corporate environment. And at that early stage in my career, it gave me a lot, a ton of confidence. And with that, I said, you know, what was kind of everyone was saying at the time, but people around me, I would say is, okay, well, you have to leave to go do something on the buy side or go join a bank at a higher, you know, level or, you know, so I went to a nonprofit real estate holding company. Uh, we were mm. nine, nine people. <laughs> um, and it made no, uh, you know, the biggest concern was, oh, you're going to take yourself off. This is what I was being told by my mentors. And I was not, obviously not current mentors, but folks that I would talk to at the time was like, you're going to take yourself off of your career trajectory if you did this. And I was really moved by the organization. It's called NHP Foundation. They were doing incredible stuff um, in terms of they, their vision was everyone should have a home, but not everyone should own a home. And they had these like, and this was before the housing crisis, but there was really visionary in terms of how they thought about this. And they were the largest national organization doing this. And I was like, I would love to help them. And they specifically needed someone that could help with some financial transactions, taxes and bond refinancings for a short period of time. I knew I wanted to go back to grad school and this was something I wanted to do. And I did it. And at the time, there weren't many people outside of my, let's call it some really close friends who are still friends and family that were supportive. Because of this, it will take you off of your career trajectory. And that, that ended up not being the case at all. Um, and as a result, and that, that's at, uh, after that job, when I went to uh, Stanford to get my MBA. But that transition taught me to really trust in my gut and that this concept of like taking you off of your career trajectory doesn't make sense because it's my career. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and the trajectory is really driven by where I want to go. And um, so I, I, I say that I keep going back to this like small boost of confidence because I don't think you get your confidence from one moment in life. But I think look, looking back in hindsight for me, there were these little things that gave me confidence to and built, like went back into this thing of giving me more confidence to take bigger risks. Mm-hmm. Um, and that mm-hmm. was really before I'd ever joined a startup. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, I'm, uh, impressed with that. And, and, you know, I'm kind of struck by the confidence piece because you're right. You know, one of the things about the investment banking world is 
there is very much kind of a formula for career trajectory, right? And there's probably a lot of mentors and people have traveled that path that will say, this is how you do it. And maybe it's not as true today, but, you know, I think really in any kind of corporate environment, there's a path and there's a path that's been taken by those before you who have had some success, things that worked for them. And they then think that that's what everybody needs to do if they want the same thing. I love the idea that you realize you didn't want your boss's boss's job. It's a great way to look at it. When I was working at the bank, I just knew I didn't like like the environment. And I knew that I, I would see people you know, kind of, you know, clocking in and clocking out and, you know, waiting for five o'clock and taking their lunch. And I just like knew like that wasn't what I wanted, but I, I I wasn't really thinking about like the end game. And, and I like, that's like a great way to shortcut it. It's like, well, this is how this goes. You know, if I don't want that, then what am I doing? What am I doing? Right. Right. But, but I also want to just come back around to this, like, you know, it's your career, right? So, And and I was curious, you know, were your parents supportive? Because obviously some of this, this confidence comes from this family dynamic, right? And and the, the safety and the things that you've talked about, um, you now are putting that into action as you take a turn, you know, that's that's not the one people are advising you. What yeah. role did your family still have in, in your in your life at that point? Yeah, a pretty important role. What I would say is it wasn't always clear to them why I was making decisions when I was making them. So again, my I, my family is not from... My parents were some of the first in their lineage to um, go to college, go to law school and have um, professional jobs. And, you know, money was always kind of tight growing up. So like this concept that I would actively leave a high paying Wall Street job to get to take a job in a uh, nonprofit real estate holding foundation was, I think, difficult for them to understand, but they always have been supportive. Um, and I felt like that also was really helpful for me because I didn't want to be in a scenario and I've never been in a scenario where I felt like I can't go to my family, now my wife, and, and be encouraged to take big risks. I think they would always just encourage me to make sure I was taking whatever decision I was making, make sure I was making that decision for the right reason for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, at the time I, you know, I cared deeply about what this organization was doing. I felt like it was a really unique opportunity and I admired the leader of the organization and, and my, who was going to be my boss. And that's always something I've tried to do is really take jobs and work with people that I admire kind of agnostic of what the kind of problem is we're going to go and work on together. That's great. So off to Stanford, was Stanford yep. something that, you know, was on your radar all along no way. or how does that come into the into the picture? I mean, it's pretty magical place. So we'll talk a little bit about how that came into your life. Yeah, very very magical place, and um, I, I really enjoyed it. And some of my closest friends and folks that I met there, it was not always in the in the play. I, I knew, kind of coming out of college, if I was going to be in business, I wanted to go back to business school. I didn't study, I didn't take any finance courses in college. I didn't take any kind of marketing or um, any, any of the kind of the core curriculum that you would expect from someone that's going to spend their career in business. 
So I knew I wanted to go back at some point to, to business. I, I always saw myself on the East Coast, actually. Um, I never thought that I would live in California or move to California or even study in California. And I applied to a, a, a group of schools and I was fortunate enough to get into schools. I'll, I'll tell you, I first applied to business school two years uh, right after Goldman, um, right after my second year at Goldman, and I got denied from the three schools I applied to. Um, and then the next year I applied, this is when I was at the NHP Foundation, um, and I got into all the schools that I applied, um, that I applied to. So I share that first part is um, I don't want people to think this everything has always been up and to the right for me. That is absolutely not even even as it relates to like just the, the stuff on my resume. But I I you know I visited all the schools that I, when I when I got into and that for my Stanford I actually recently been I've been dating my now wife for about a year and I was like let's go come with me to this admit weekend. It's like people like and so it was just like a fun trip to California. No intention of staying. She came and it was it was a great trip and we were going back and at the time we were long distance. She was flying back to um, New York and I was in D.C. Uh, at the NHP Foundation and and she said, "So what did you think?" And I was like, "This place is awesome, but you know I'm probably going to go to one of the schools um, on the East Coast." And she said, "I really think you should consider coming going to Stanford." Now this is my girlfriend who like I'm in love with <laughs> and I'm like, "So you want me to move across the country to this school and I have all these other schools that go to?" And um, she said, "You know, I just." It feels like more of an environment for risk taking, and 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 that is kind of like it's it's a lot less like what you've been exposed to in New York and in DC, and that really motivated. I was like, you know, and I thought about that a lot. And these windows, the when you're accepted to when you have to decide, are pretty short. They're like one two weeks, and it was more of like I think she's right, <laughs> and mm, mm. Um, decided decided to go. Mm. Yeah, and and. And I'm um, curious about like what it was really like because I was not a good student. Uh, Stanford was never an option, um, but but I'm envious of the experience because I know it's truly a very magical place. You know the people and in the in the education and the the professors, just the environment. I mean the the whole thing and kind of at that time in particular. I mean you know this is yeah. like. Uh, you know, a pretty important time in that part of the the world, really. So, tell me a little bit more about like you know what happens and and what it was sure. like for you. So you you talked about hey, how do you keep people humble? You just keep putting them in situations where they're humbled. <laughs> um, so um, I, I I loved it. It was the you know certainly the professors. Some of them are, are lessons I pull from today, and that's no exaggeration. It was it was amazing. I had a class, two classes, two or three classes that have really formative impacts on me. One is one um, called interpersonal dynamics, touchy feely, um, that basically helps you figure out it's interpersonal. It's hey, hey, yes, you want to lead organizations, but first you need to like understand people, and you need to lead people, and that requires you really connecting with people and understanding that you got to bring your whole self to work. And how do you cultivate and nurture that type of and become a, that type of leader? Uh, incentives and productivity. Um, and these people, like these professors, like worked in the White House. They like have these like amazing the research. And then the one that um, was really interesting, um, uh, they had managing growing enterprise. There were these kind of entrepreneur led courses uh, that were taught by lecturers. So they had, um, and in one day, you, you mentioned Eric Schmidt. One day there was Eric Schmidt, who was a lecturer at the time, there was the founder of Benchmark. 
and there was, uh, and they were teaching a class and it was around um, venture capital. And the question was, do you invest in great entrepreneurs or do you invest in great markets? And Eric Schmidt had this really eloquent, um, you know, here's why you need great entrepreneurs and leaders and operators. They really can take a business, whatever. And the, and it was just so interesting. Um, founder Benchmark is like, no way. He's like, how many of you have seen um, a horrible movie with amazing actors and actresses? And he's like, that's what, that's what Eric is pitching. He's like, he's like, he's like, markets always win. And it was just so funny to see these like ah. wildly successful people, one an investor, one an operator, go at it, but at the same time, teach you and help inform how you think about the world in, in a classroom. You're like, these people yeah. are the people doing it today. So yeah, I could yeah. go on, but I really enjoyed my time out there. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, Eric actually also in that same talk, he was just being interviewed like in a fireside chat. And he was talking about how he knew that he his secret to success was just kind of hitching himself to really smart people. And, uh -huh. um, you know, that he was never a founder of anything, nope. which is interesting. And, and, and it was, it, you know, it was really sort of, uh, you know, said in a very humble way, because I'm like, the guy's worth $26 billion. <laughs> like, you know, he was kind of leading a lot of things and he was just pretending like he, you know, was just, you know, along for the ride with, you know, jobs and Sergey and whatever, you know, uh, super, super there, there's definitely guy. some, uh, some, some power there. Yeah. And, you know, it's also fascinating. Another uh, VC firm that was at the same conference was talking about how they are now just investing in people, not ideas. And it's mm -hmm. not even so much like in the way that, you know, we had kind of, or I've kind of heard that in the past. It was, it was like, they're going to, kids in college and and writing million dollar checks and saying we don't care if you have an idea yet and we don't even care if your first idea is the right idea we just want to bet on you and and so it's like super early stage and maybe we can talk about you know kind yeah. of your you know venture um, experience, but but sure. tell me a little bit. You know, before we kind of get you know to that, I want to make sure out of Stanford, you know, you start to immerse yourself in that tech world. Uh, you know, in Silicon yeah. Valley, talk a little bit about that part of your life. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so came out, and I I still feel like I, I didn't know what I wanted to do <laughs> when I grew up. But the thing I liked about technology. And by the way, I didn't take Andy Grove's class. There were so many classes I didn't take. If I could go back now, knowing what I've done in my career, I would take. But what I did know was, and what I loved was things were changing so fast that it really required you to almost be a student to really understand and to enter into a new business market. And that's what I loved. And then the second thing I loved was to be an expert in something that was developing at the time, my the all the phones that people had when I was in uh, business school were trios. I don't even know if you remember those. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this was before the iPhone, but then but mobile was becoming an, a kind of a category, and people and specifically the consumer element of mobile really didn't exist. So I like the idea that things were moving so fast; it required a lot of learning. And I like the idea that you could become an expert in a shorter period of time, three to five years. When you think of becoming an expert in manufacturing, those are 
or other kind of more stable in industries that um, requires a lot more time. So I just love that. And, and I, I knew I was going to be in the Bay. My wife was training there. We, we enjoyed living there. So that's when I really immersed myself in tech. And I took my first job actually was at a Series A, joined a Series A funded company. Um, I had I'd met and that, that job came to me through relationship. The job was never posted anywhere. I met the founder um, helped him raise some capital and joined to lead uh, business development, which I'd never done, but learned a lot about early kind of high, let's call it, I was, I was doing software infrastructure. So this isn't like kind of consumer stuff. So I had to read API docs to even know what it was that we were building. I ended up working really closely with engineers, um, a lot of engineers because of the product that we had, which actually was really meaningful. I didn't realize it at the time. And because the product was so technical and because the team was so small, it actually required me to go way deeper into understanding of the technology than I would have if I joined one, once the company was larger, and two, if the product wasn't as technical, which again, will serve me later. So through that business, we actually were acquired by PayPal. So I went to PayPal for a short period of time and then was recruited out of there uh, to join Twitter to actually do something very similar to what I'd done at my startup, but to lead that for platform business development for, for Twitter at a much larger scale. And that was really amazing. And what's interesting is I learned that part of my referral into that was because someone that I had, um, had been proximate with and got to know when I was doing, working with this highly technical product, was working in a technical function at Twitter, recommended me for this role. So I like going back on these dots, it's like, okay, these relationships came because of like diving into the work, but also were really meaningful in, in kind of each step along the way. So yeah, I was at Twitter for four years. I, I led platform business development. I, um, the head of business development at the time tapped me and another uh, a technical person on our team. And she said, go build something, like figure out what we should be doing. And we spent all this time doing that. And we built this really cool thing where we had this player like a video player and like tweets scrolling that are related to the thing that was playing on the video, live video. And we used a partner at the time that I've been working with was the National Basketball NBA, National Basketball Association. And I was like, hey, can you give me feed of the game and tell me the time that the game happened? Because I was building a demo app. And so they did. They sent me this video. And then we layered on the tweets that were happening during the game. And then we presented that. We're like, this is what we should do. So she said, wow, that's awesome. And then the next day, a guy tapped me on my shoulder. He's like, hey, literally, it was like very covert. He's like, you should show this to Anthony Noto, who was at the time the CFO of the company. I'm like, why would I show this to the CFO of the company? And that later that day, I got pulled into his office and he was telling me about, this is a top secret thing, but we're in the finals of getting the Thursday night football from the NFL to stream on Twitter. And it's between us and he names all these other Silicon Valley companies. Like, Whoa, that's amazing. He's like, but we have to show them something. Um, and I saw what you built and I really like it. I'm like, okay, cool. So the next week, so he's like, let's just keep in touch. Who knows what will happen? Let's just keep in touch. That was literally my first conversation with him. Um, the next week, Joy and I, we were on spring break with the family and it got announced that Twitter wins the Thursday night football. It's huge news for, within my industry. And um, I got pings from Jack, Adam, Adam Bay and COO and the CFO. Hey, can you send me the thing you built? 
<laughs> so um, the next week we have what's called tea time. And that tea time, they, Anthony Noto gets up and tells the talking about this NFL deal. And he's like, and this is what it could look like. And he shows the thing that we built. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then that day he's like, Hey, I need you to come work for me and be GM of this live video thing. And that's what I did. I joined his team wow. and it was, yeah, it was, it was really cool, but uh, all in like really random wasn't the reason we built that was not for that reason, but it ended up being kind of like, Hey, this is what we're going to use as a proxy to win the deal, to do the stuff. And here we are. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Okay. I have to ask you, you know, with all the Elon Musk uh, news oh, and man. kind of the current state of Twitter, just tell me your thoughts on kind of, you know, what's happening at Twitter today. I know you haven't been there in a while, but yeah, I'm yeah. Sure you got friends I, that are. I, I, I do. I do. Yeah. So one, first and foremost, I feel for the people who are there. I, I will say of, of all the places I've worked, Twitter has you work at Twitter because you truly, truly love the product and you think it's important. And the people there love the product and they think it's important. And it's a really hard product to, 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 to build and to maintain. Um, there's so many different voices. Disinformation is really scary. Um, it's really hard. And I think you, it really requires a lot of people that have a lot of empathy and people that care deeply about you know, protecting the user's voice. Like Twitter has these principles about like making sure that you can get to the truth. And I don't think it's about maximizing shareholder value. And I think whoever, whomever it is, be it Musk or, um, or you know, if that goes through, I think, you know, having the right leadership in place at Twitter is, is really important. Look, I, I, I find Elon Musk entertaining. I think some of the things that he says um, around free speech, you know, you buy, he's bought a company to take it private. And, you know, I don't know. I, I just, I, I don't, I don't think he is, we'll see, we'll see what happens. I also don't want this to age poorly. So uh, if, if Mr. Musk, if you're listening, like best of luck. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't think he's tuning into the gravity <laughs> podcast. Um, we're, we're a little local at the moment, but yeah, interesting. Yeah. I, I'm, I am kind of curious and there's so much I'd like sure. to talk to you about in the, in the tech world and the web three and tech for good and all of that. But, you know, the free speech thing is interesting. You know, I, I think, you know, uh, personally I'm an advocate for free speech, but I don't want Twitter to become a place where, you can be racist openly and, and, you know, where things start to gain power that, you know, really are not good for, for each other, you know, not not in least the way that I see the world. And so I'm kind of curious, you know, maybe you can just talk a little bit about, you know, kind of what's happened in the world of social media and, you know, kind of maybe, maybe the free speech issue as, as one example and, and kind of, you know, where maybe you see things headed, you know, as, as, you know, my belief, um, I think, you know, just as I've learned, everything is changing, everything is changing and it's, and it's, and, and mostly everything is changing, um, as a result of the technology. And, and I'm not saying it's good or bad. I, I think, you know, it has the potential to be very good, but I am kind of curious for you to maybe just speak to kind of how you see, Sure. Um, tech influencing our lives today and in the future. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I, I too think technology, particularly social platforms, have a lot of positive impact on the world. 
Um, I think you see this in things like the Arab Spring, where you can literally have uh, people's voices uplift and move a people in a way that really wouldn't be possible in regimes that are controlling media. So I think that is a really important thing to remember in the context of social media. I think there's another element of free speech that is oftentimes forgotten. And that's the context by which free speech and the doctrine that we use to govern free speech was made. It was not made when there was an internet or when there was a platform where you could get mass distribution to myths and disinformation. Free speech, when you know, it first became relevant in this country, the only way you could get an audience to, to say anything was for, that, for you to use the distribution that was available, which at the time, quite frankly, were newspapers. Well, you couldn't be on the front page of a newspaper spewing hatred and vitriol because advertisers wouldn't support that. They wouldn't put ads in those newspapers. So that's how it worked. You had to have a message that was at least tolerable to make it to the front page of a newspaper so that you could get an audience for that message. Now, that is almost the opposite of how messages work and, and spread on social platforms. If you say something that is tolerable and that people like, you will get very few engagements. You might get engagements with people that agree with you, but you will get very few engagements on these platforms. If you say something that has a lot of hate and vitriol and is really, um, you know, kind of, uh, let's call it disgusting, that message wouldn't be allowed to be on the front page of the newspaper. And, but it could end up, as long as it doesn't violate any terms, it could end up being vi getting viral on these platforms, getting a massive, massive audience. Well, what happens with that? What happens when you can now start spreading vitriol? It's almost like the, even before newspapers, you would go to the park and there would be someone on a stoop and they would give a speech. Well, if they were giving a speech that was you know, really vile or whatever, people would ask them, people would get, push them off the stoop. You had to say something that at least resonated with people in a way that was not hateful. And I think the challenge is, and by the way, that's not always true, but I think for the most part, that was true. And I think the challenge that social platforms have is, one, when you are talking about, hey, the founders of these companies, they could never have imagined the scale that these businesses have grown to. You can't imagine, hey, I'm going to build something that 2 billion, 3 billion people are going to interact with every single month. Or something like a tweet that will have impressions all over the globe within, within a second. Like you can't have that type of scale in mind. You require different tools. There's a lot of things that are spread, but forget about the speech, the videos that need to be monitored that AI, quite frankly, doesn't pick up. So there are people at all these companies, by the way, that whose job it is to just watch for like inappropriate images and Im inappropriate videos, really scary, terrible things happening and just taking them down. Um, that type of, that is what it is to run up, to run Twitter. <laughs> you know, it's not just about what Trump tweets or, you know, what Elon Musk tweets. It is to make, to keep these platforms safe. You're having to institute all of these things that quite frankly, it's not simply about, Hey, like, should we allow this person that's saying something that's false without telling anyone that it's false? And I don't think you can take the same stance that you took when you're talking about newspapers and when you're talking about a news network because the platforms have too much scale. And we've seen this. They impact elections. Um, they impact kind of sentiment around war. 
Like there's a reason I think that people want to own media companies. It's because it can impact how people think about you, your organization, your business, your business interests. So I just think that free speech is really important and powerful and needs to be preserved. But there is a context around running a platform that has massive scale that also needs to be understood and managed. And and I'd say the last thing I'll say is the biggest challenge, I think, in all of this is the more and more government kind of is stepping in, the more and more they also need to staff up to understand how these platforms work. It is really Mm. painful to see, you know, a senator questioning Mark Zuckerberg and not even understanding how Facebook works. Um, It's really painful. And I, I understand that everyone's trying to do the best thing, but you need to have the best and brightest to be able to govern and regulate the best and brightest. Well, that's a whole nother subject and problem and, and one that, you know, I, I don't have the answer for, and it seems maybe (laughs) almost, uh, unlikely to get solved because you've got government going at a speed, which is kind of three times slower and tech is going three times faster. So it's really like, you know, nine, 10 times apart in kind of the pace in which things are moving. And that just seems to be getting worse and worse, but we're going to run out of time here in a little bit. So I want to make sure we kind of land uh, a little bit on, you know, you here in Columbus, (laughs) Um, you know, thanks maybe to some mutual friends, you know, here you are in Columbus, Ohio, and I'd love for you to just kind of elaborate a little bit, maybe even circling back around to community and, you know, what it is that, you know, uh, keeps you here and has you here in the first place. And, and maybe you could speak a little to what you're up to today. Absolutely happy to do that. And I will bring it full circle. So for, for me, what, what got me to Columbus, um, I joined an early stage technology company that I hadn't heard about, but my best friend in the world um, was a board member there and had told me about uh, his excitement, enthusiasm around the leader and the opportunity. And that's how I was connected. It was a personal relationship, someone that I trusted that introduced me to the company. They were based here. We had no plans of moving to Columbus, but I you know, took the leap. And my wife, with her support, we moved our family out here. And that's what got us out here. I would say what, what and that, and I was at that company for about four years. What got us to stay is really the community. I think the, at the time, my oldest son was start, going to be starting kindergarten. So we moved the summer before he was starting kindergarten. And we have found a real home for both of our sons here in Bexley. And it's a, it's a place, I would say, not that dissimilar to one that I, to a town I remember growing up in. And I've just been really excited and engaged in being connected here uh, in Columbus more broadly and in Bexley in specific. I'll say, um, so I, I, was, I was at Root and I left, I left in October of 2021 really with uh, not a clear, fuzzy idea of what I want to do, but not a really clear idea. I've been doing some angel investing over the last few years and had been doing some advising. Uh, I had the opportunity to join a couple of boards over the last few years. One is uh, Olive uh, Healthcare Automation Platform here in town. And uh, the other is MI Homes, um, led by Bobby Schottenstein, a person I have a lot of admiration for and really feeds into my interest in in, in and wanting to be a part of folks that build communities. And I realized I wanted to get back to work with early stage companies. And 
had been talking to a lot of different companies and started, ended up starting what is a, um, I call it a fractional business development company, uh, where companies will hire me almost like what they were hiring me to do full-time, but just more doing it um, on a part-time consultative basis. And then those same companies, I'm also um, have the opportunity to invest in them. So very excited about that. I think it brings me back to what I've been, the kind of skill set I've been building up to and my why for that um, and why I'm excited for that goes back to kind of this concept of networks. So every job that I've had that's been really impactful and changed the trajectory of my professional career has come from being what I call being in network. It's come from someone that I have known personally that has reached out to me that has um, specifically with the problems they, that they, because they know me, they know that I have the capabilities to solve. And as a result, I like most, unlike most people of color, have had the opportunity to join two really early stage companies and lead business development at those companies. So what I want to do with the business I've started is to create a platform that actually enables the, that type of connection for more people of color and to me, that is how the impact I want to have from a diversity, equity, and inclusion standpoint in technology is I want to work with early stage companies. I want to help them find diverse leaders early on in their company. Because the thing I've learned specifically in tech is that early stage companies grow really fast and they're actually built through personal networks. So most of the jobs of leaders at early stage technology companies come from people that know people that can know people, it's not because they posted jobs for a head of engineering. It's, hey, and the reason is the problems are really pronounced and they need to get solved really fast. So it's like, hey, who do you know? This just broke. Who can solve this today? It's like, well, I know this guy. More no, usually, Typically, it's this guy. I know this guy. I worked with him here. Okay, cool. Can he get here tonight to help with this thing? And that's how teams form. So what I want to do is be there early on as a fractional leader within the organization, make sure that we're getting more diverse people in the organizations. And this goes to kind of a meta thing. I told you I was from a community that was very diverse, that was very welcoming, and as a result, created real bonds between people that were different. That's pretty unusual. Most people's personal networks are pretty homogenous. And I think this is a way to actually get diverse leadership in early stage companies, as a result, build very diverse organizations. And to, over the next 15, 20 years, as we build out this platform, I think ultimately that will lead to companies that people really want to work, work in. And by the way, we talked about this with teams, build really diverse personal relationships from folks that they're meeting and going through these things as they're scaling these organizations. And, and that's what I want to spend the rest of my career doing. Yeah, it's kind of really a treat for me just to kind of hear the entire story because it all makes perfect sense. You know, when you look at your entire life, it's every piece of that puzzle has led you to this point so that yeah. you can use it to help other people, right? right you can right. you can use it to build teams, to advise, to mentor, to create networks, to start things that are um, supportive of diversity, you know, I mean, your yeah. whole, your, all of your life experience, you know, your, your experience in, in Columbia, your experience with your parents, seeing their, um, 
you know, drive and their, and their, you know, you know, activism. I mean, it, it all leads you right to this work, which puts you, you know, perfectly in the place to do some amazing things. I'm excited about what you're doing and I'm awesome. uh, thrilled that that you and Joy have chosen Bexley and Columbus and that you're staying here. I think it's really important, you know, for this ecosystem of this community that we're not just building venture-backed companies of people that come and go. And, you know, right. some of that will exist, but people that actually want to stay and be a part of a community um, like you you have chosen to do is is really wonderful. So... Kumi, thanks for uh, taking the time. I enjoy the conversation. And um, if you have any final thoughts, uh, I'll give you a chance to share them. Well, so first and foremost, thank you so much for having me. I feel like I had an opportunity to relive a lot of things from my uh, childhood and, and growing up. And to share it with a friend is also, uh, I feel like you know me a lot better now, yeah. as do some of your listeners. Um, I My parting thoughts are, I, I think it's really important to find a place where you feel safe. And then from, from that safety, it's really important to um, just push yourself to do things and then return to that safe place whenever you need it. And that could be psychologically a place mentally, that could be a place where you go. But oftentimes I feel like not everyone has found that place yet. And I think it's really hard to expect yourself to go and do really amazing things before you found that. Look for people that you admire and do stuff with them. I think whether that's in medicine and in personal life, whatever it is that you do, I think that's really been helpful for me. And then I just think it's just worth worth spending some of your life solving problems you think are worth solving. Um, you'll find that you have energy around that uh, when things get hard. And because no matter what you do, things will get hard. And then at the end of the day, you have to have fun. <laughs> yeah. You have to find some things that you, you enjoy doing. So... Um, that's awesome. probably it. But thank you so much. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, likewise. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap. Thanks, Kumi. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at The Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak. 